This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insight hour. Welcome to the Joseph Goldstein Insight Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared interest in self-discovery. Join Joseph as he shares his deep knowledge of the path of mindfulness. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Joseph. Tonight like to continue with the discussion of the next section of the Satipatthana Sutta. And this is mindfulness of the Dhamma with respect to the five aggregates. And the Buddha uses this contemplation of the aggregates, or in Pali it's called Kanda, in Sanskrit Skanda, to analyze our subjective experience and through this analysis to deconstruct the very deeply held concept and belief in self. There are many instances when we read the suttas, the discourses, where, we, where people would hear these teachings on the aggregates and they'd become fully enlightened. And if not fully enlightened, it's said that the stainless Dharma vision eye would open. And people would be praising the Buddha in this way after these teachings, saying he was turning upright what had been overthrown, revealing what was hidden, showing the way to those who are lost, or holding up a lamp in the dark for those with eyes to see. Sometimes at first reading or hearing about the five aggregates, this teaching, it might seem dry or some kind of philosophical analysis. But when we bring the teachings directly to our experience, when we apply them in our experience, they lead us to a profound investigation of what it is that we call life. That's what these teachings are about. What is it that we call life? What is this experience of living? These teachings and the aggregates open up whole new levels of understanding. And they're even more transformative 
then the discoveries in science of the atom or subatomic particles or quantum realities in terms of getting beneath the surface perceptions of things. Because these teachings on the aggregates point us to the direct realities underlying the surface appearance of being, the surface appearance of self. So from the, from the Satipatthana Sutta, what are the instructions? The Buddha says, again bhikkhus, in regard to dhammas, one abides contemplating dhammas in terms of the five aggregates of clinging. And how does one in regard to dhammas abide contemplating dhammas in terms of the five aggregates of clinging? Here one knows such is material form, such it's arising, such it's passing away. Such is feeling, such is such it's arising, it's passing away. Such is perception, such it's arising, such it's passing away. Such are volitions, such they're arising, such they're passing away. And such is consciousness, such it's arising, such it's passing away. The Buddha is outlining each of the five aggregates, what each of them are. And then suggesting that not only do we recognize it, but we observe their impermanent nature. We observe how they come into being, how they pass away. So before going into a discussion of each one specifically, just a few general comments on this particular teaching. First, what does the Buddha mean by the term khanda? It's usually translated in English as aggregate. And we can understand the meaning of this term on two levels. Most generally, khanda or aggregate means a collection of things or a heap of things, a grouping of things, and includes everything that is in the group, or all the elements that make up the substance of something. So all of that is a khanda. So an example, one of the terms in Pali come across the term dukkha khanda. So what this means is all that is included, the, the khanda is all that is included in the term dukkha, in the term suffering. All that goes in to make up dukkha. So this is what khanda aggregate means generally. The second level, and this is more specific, it refers to the elements, the specific elements or substratum of existence which give rise to the appearance of various forms of, of life. So it's all the elements which give rise to the appearance of self. And this is from an example of, from one of the texts. It says, just as the word chariot is used to designate the coexistence and arrangement of certain parts, just so, 
when the khandas or aggregates are there, there occurs the concept of being. This is the concept of chariot or car, to update it a bit. And it was used to designate the coexistence and arrangement of certain parts. That's what the word car or chariot refers to, the arrangement, just so when the khandas, the aggregates are there, it gives rise to the concept of self, gives rise to the concept of being. So everything we call birth, we call life, or we call death, these tremendously significant things in most people's lives, in the light of this teaching is seen as just the arising and passing away of the different aggregates. There's no self there to be born, no self there to die. Now in the Satipatthana Sutta, and also in many other discourses, discourses, the Buddha doesn't simply refer to the five aggregates, but he often uses the phrase, the five aggregates of clinging. So that's a, that's a phrase that we find many, many times in the suttas. So what does this mean, the five aggregates of clinging? It refers to the tendency or the conditionings in the mind to identify with, to desire, to cling to the aggregates. When we examine our experience carefully, we see that there is this attachment to desire or clinging to each of these aggregates singly and to the aggregates collectively. And the Buddha is saying that it's this clinging to the aggregates which is the cause of suffering. He summarized the first noble truth. You know, in his teachings on the four noble truths, and the first truth is the truth of dukkha. He summarized it by saying, in short, after listing all the various aspects of dukkha, he summarizes saying, in short, the five aggregates of clinging are dukkha. So if this is the case, if the essence of all the suffering in our lives is clinging to these five aggregates, it might be worth our investigation. You know, to see, okay, well, what is this? What are they? And how do we cling to them? So this is not a superficial teaching. This gets to the heart of how the concept of self is created. It gets to the essence of the cause of dukkha, of even what dukkha, what suffering is, these five aggregates of clinging. So the teaching begins with what is most obvious and most tangible. So the first aggregate is in Pali called rupa. 
And it's often translated as material form or materiality. Now, in an earlier talk on the mindfulness of the body, uh, earlier in this series, we've already discussed in some detail the nature of the material elements. But I'd like to do a quick review, for those of you who don't remember from three years ago. The Buddha talked of four primary physical elements, what he called the four great essentials, that is earth element, air, fire, and water. And then there are 24 secondary or derived aspects, the material elements, qualities like color and sound and taste, smell. Now we hear this, you know, earth, air, fire, water. It doesn't really seem to measure up to kind of how we now understand things scientifically. You know, and it's clear that our scientific understanding of the nature of matter and our scientific description has become quite a bit more refined. But there's something about this framework that is still tremendously helpful for us because it's a way of describing our felt sense of the material physical world. You know, if we talk about experiencing the physical world in terms of atoms and electrons and protons, it doesn't give us much guidance or direction in terms of, well, what does that actually feel like? You know, what's our experience of it? But this very simple framework of the four elements is pointing particularly to our subjective felt sense of it. And so it helps us direct, it helps direct us to what our experience actually is. Whenever we are mindful of a physical sensation, could be hardness or softness or vibration or pressure or heat or cold or lightness or heaviness, Whenever we are aware, whenever we are mindful of a physical sensation, we are in the contemplation of the first aggregate. We're fulfilling this instruction of the teachings. Now in the sutta it says, the Buddha is saying, know each of these basic elements, each of these sensations, as being rupa, as being materiality. This is a much more profound instruction than it might appear to be. Because when we're contemplating this aggregate of rupa, the physical elements, it leads us from the level of concept to the level of direct experience. Generally, our way of understanding is 
my back hurts, my head hurts, my leg hurts, I have a pain in my knee. But back and head and knee, those are all concepts. There's no sensation which is called back. There's no sensation called knee. We don't actually experience back. That is a concept which we've created. By following this instruction in the contemplation of the aggregates of rupa, of the elements, the Buddha is leading us from this world of concept to the level of direct perception of what actually is going on for us. And on this level of direct perception, we can then take the next step in the instruction where he says, here one knows such is material form, such is its arising, such is its passing away. One of the most deluding aspects about concepts, and this is a world, mostly we live in the world of concepts, and one of the most deluding aspects of this is that the concepts themselves don't change. We use the same word, head, or body, or arm, or leg, or foot, same word yesterday, same word today, same word tomorrow. And it reinforces this attachment to being on the level of concept, reinforces the illusion that there is something permanent that these words are actually referring to. So it's strengthening this hallucination of permanence. Yet when we are contemplating the aggregate of rupa, and again, that's the collection, that's the heap of all the particular physical elements, physical sensations that we feel. When we're contemplating this first aggregate of rupa, then we can experience, we do experience, they're changing nature, and not only changing on a macro level, changing on a micro level, moment to moment. Now, this is so obvious in the walking meditation, whether it's the slow, you know, slow walking, um, or in, in your walking meditation, or just walking as you're moving a, about. When we're undistracted, when we're simply resting in the awareness, in the contemplation of rupa, contemplation of the body, it becomes so clear that what we're actually aware of are simply different sensations arising. It's like sensations in space. That's all that's there in our experience. It's a pressure being known, or a slightness being known, or a movement being known. There's no body, there's no foot, there's no leg, because we've dropped from the level of concept into the direct awareness of what's actually there. We see that there's nothing solid or permanent at all. 
And sometimes this is particularly striking to me, even, even as I'm just moving about in my daily life and being mindful in this way, it's like just walking around with this felt sense of all that's there is this flow of changing sensations. It's like Casper the ghost or something. There's no one there. You know, there's nothing solid there. So this is what becomes possible. This perception becomes possible, this understanding, as we are actually contemplating this first aggregate. You know, it's likewise when we hear a bell or other sounds, the concept stays the same, the concept bell, but our actual experience of it on the level of rupa, on the level of the first aggregate, is one of a flow of changing vibrations. There's nothing solid at all. So this is not insignificant. This contemplation of rupa brings us in a very effective way, in a simple way, an accessible way, from the level of concept, seeing the world through the veil of concept, into the realm of direct experience, of changing elements. So this becomes more and more vivid as we become less and less distracted. So as we stabilize our attention and mindfulness on this very first tangible aspect of experience, the aspect of material form, it leads quite naturally into the contemplation of the second aggregate, which is that of feeling, or in Pali, Vedana. Now, as with the elements in an earlier talk, devoted quite a lot of time to this discussion of feeling as the second foundation of mindfulness. But then I want to look at just the key role that this aggregate of feeling plays in the journey of our awakening. Because the Buddha singled it out is singled out feeling because it plays such an important role. And as you know, in the Buddhist context, the word feeling does not mean emotion. That's not what we're referring to. In the Buddhist context, Vedana, translated as feeling, refers to the quality of an experience being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And this feeling quality, feeling tone, is arising in every moment of experience. So feeling has the function of sensing what we could call the taste of the experience. It's like savoring the taste in the sense of hear a sound, we experience it as being pleasant or unpleasant, neutral. 
feel a physical sensation, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Feel a mind state. We feel it as pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Now this feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, which is going on moment after moment, is so important because it is the conditioning factor of our reactions. The Buddha is so precise in his understanding and analysis of what's driving our lives, and that's what's so fantastic about the teachings. You know, he's pointing us so directly and so precisely to just how things are unfolding. So we can see with this feeling tone, this second aggregate, something pleasant is a pleasant feeling. We like it. We want it to continue. We want to hold on. So that conditions desire, conditions craving, it conditions grasping. Something unpleasant, an unpleasant feeling, we don't like it, we don't want it. We try to push it away, we want to have it end. So it conditions aversion, anger, fear, irritation. When we apply the Buddha's teaching of the Satipatthana Sutta, We are practicing, one knows such is feeling, such it's arising, such it's passing away. And so we practice learning to recognize these feelings as they arise, so they don't pass unnoticed. And we also practice seeing their changing nature. Again, this has tremendous ramifications for us. The Buddha said, whatever feelings arise, whether pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, abide contemplating impermanence in those feelings. Contemplate fading away, letting go of those feelings. Contemplating thus, we do not cling to anything in this world. When we don't cling, there is no agitation. When not agitated, we personally attain Nibbana. This is a pretty strong message. He's saying, in the contemplation of the impermanence of feelings, when we actually train ourselves, practice, noticing when they're arising, as they arise, and giving attention to the fact that they're arising and passing away. It deconditions the mind from grasping. Contemplating thus, we do not cling to anything in this world. When we don't cling, there is no agitation. When there is no agitation, we personally attain Nibbana. Now, in one way, this sounds very simple. It seems like a very simple instruction. But how often, in the midst of some strong feeling, some strong feeling tone, how often do we remember to actually do this? Remembering in the midst of a strong pleasantness or the midst of a strong unpleasantness or neutrality, how often do we remember and 
bring to bear the understanding, yes, this is also just arising and passing. So we can pay attention to this both in our daily lives and in more formal meditation practice. So you're sitting, and maybe the mind settles in to you know, a somewhat more concentrated state. So maybe there's a sense of stillness, a sense of ease, a sense of calm. Watch the tendency, the very strong tendency of mind to like this. You know, we do, especially if we've kind of been struggling in our practice or, you know, it's been difficult and all of a sudden, <sighs> a sense of relief, of ease, of peace. Strong tendency of mind. Oh, this is nice. I like it. Let me hang out with this for a while. This is a good time to bring this instruction, you know, into the practice. Contemplate, notice, note, pleasant feeling. This is pleasant, pleasant. There's a further aspect to this, because sometimes we can note, we may have enough mindfulness to really note pleasant, pleasant, so... You know, we're on top of it in that way. But even as we recognize the pleasant feeling, you know, and perhaps even noting it, there can still be this subtle identification with it. Oh, pleasant, pleasant. Oh, I'm feeling pleasant. I'm feeling pleasant. You know, and we just, we kind of collapse into the identification with the pleasant feeling. So that would be something else to notice. We recognize it, but we can become identified in the enjoyment of it because it's pleasant. There's a technique that I've used to help cut through this particular identification with pleasant and can be applied to unpleasant as well. And it's by using a more comprehensive note of what's happening. So I'll give you an example. At one point, this was now quite a few years ago, but it's very vivid in my mind. I was going through one phase in my practice where there were a lot of sexual fantasies coming up and they were very pleasant. And I would be sitting and these fantasies would come, you know, and it's imagery and kind of a nice feeling in the body. So quite a while I was just getting lost in them and enjoying them and then sometime later waking up. But then, you know, after a while, no, no, come on. You're supposed to be practicing. Okay, so I started noting pleasant, 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 pleasant. But it didn't do it. Somehow it didn't, it didn't unhook the mind in some way. It wasn't enough because I think I was still identifying with the pleasant feeling even though I was recognizing it. So I started making a double note. I started noting contact pleasant. 
seeing more clearly that it was the contact with the object that gave rise to the pleasant feeling. Of course, this is part of the Buddhist teaching on the law of dependent origination. Feeling comes out of contact. Out of contact, feeling arises. So when I noted, when I highlighted both aspects, you know, the image, the fantasy would come, and I would note contact pleasant. It was acknowledging, yes, there's this contact with the object, and it's pleasant. Somehow what it did was to depersonalize that pleasant feeling. I just saw the impersonality of it. I saw how the feeling itself, that feeling tone, was simply arising out of contact. And it was amazing. By making that simple double note, it was just like hitting the right acupuncture point. So I'd note contact feeling, and the whole thing would disappear. So sometimes we have to play a little bit and really see what do we need in terms of our mindfulness to capture you know, more of the totality of what is going on. Now we can do this same thing with unpleasant feelings as well. So there's a story of Ajahn Shah. And he uses different language. He's not, he's not using this kind of very precise language, but the point of the story is exactly the same. You know, he at one point uh, had gone off on retreat himself and was staying in a monastery uh, just outside of a village. And he was there meditating. Then one night the villagers were partying all night. You know, and as those of you who have been in Asia know, uh, often in these village scenes, there's loudspeakers and music blaring and it's, you know, incredibly noisy. And Ajahn Shah said, was just getting more and more irritated. You know, don't these villagers, here I am, their teacher, and don't they know I'm meditating, and why are they making so much noise? And just same kind of mind loops that we get into. So then he started giving himself a little talking to. And this is from a book by uh, Ajahn Amaro, who's recounting the story of Ajahn Shah. He said, well, they're just having a good time down there. I'm making myself miserable up here. No matter how upset I get, my anger is just making more noise internally. And then he had this insight. Oh, the sound is just the sound. It's me who is going out to annoy it. If I leave the sound alone, it won't annoy me. It's just doing what it has to do. That's what sound does. It makes sound. This is its job. So if I don't go out and bother the sound, it's not going to bother me. You know, and so in that kind of very down-to-earth way that Ajahn Chah had, he's just pointing out, if we can just recognize the sound for what it is, If it's an unpleasant sound, noting the unpleasantness for what it is, there's no reactivity in the mind. We're simply being mindful of what's arising. This is the contemplation of Vedana. This is the second of the aggregates. 
as we practice in this way, with the aggregate of feeling, we can apply the Buddha's very profound instruction to his son Rahula when he said, see everything with perfect wisdom. This is not mine, this is not I, this is not myself. So that becomes, it's like a mantra of liberation applied to every object and here applied to the aggregates whether it's the aggregates of rupa, the physical elements, the aggregate of feeling, see everything with perfect wisdom. This is not I, this is not mine, this is not myself. The purpose of these instructions, you know, and the Buddha gave this teaching uh, on Satipatthana, it wasn't, the purpose of it is not to engage in some kind of philosophical analysis, you know, of the aggregates and of impermanence and of not-self. The whole purpose of the instructions is to lead us to our own direct, immediate, intuitive insight into the nature of all these elements. Okay, so the first aggregate is rupa, the material, physical elements. The second aggregate is vedana, or feeling, that quality of pleasantness, unpleasantness, neutrality. The third of the five aggregates is the mental factor of perception. And in Pali, the Pali word for this is sanya. And sanya, perception, like feeling, is singled out. The Buddha is singling these factors out of all the other mental factors, feeling and perception, because of the very unique role they play in the process of our conditioning. So he's highlighting these particular mental factors for our contemplation. And just like feeling, perception also is conditioned or arises out of contact. This contact with an object, a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a sensation, a thought, you know, an image. This contact with an object and out of that contact automatically arise feeling and perception. So the function of perception, how we're using this term, is to recognize, name, and then remember each arising object. So for example, we hear a sound. The sound wave itself is rupa, that's just, that's just the airwaves. Those are the physical elements. We feel it as being pleasant or unpleasant. That's Vedana. Perception is what picks out the distinguishing marks of that sound. So we recognize, oh, that's a bird, that's a car. Or even to recognize that this is hearing as opposed to seeing or tasting. 
all of that is the function of sanya or perception. So it picks out the distinguishing mark, distinguishing marks. It remembers, it names it through a concept, you know, bird or car or whatever it is. It remembers that concept, it stores it in memory for the next time we hear that sound. So perception has a very critical function in how we operate in the world. It's what recognizes things. Now, when perception is balanced with mindfulness, you know, when this factor of recognition is balanced with mindfulness, it's like putting a frame around the picture in order to see the picture more clearly. Now, that's why we frame a picture. It highlights, it focuses our attention for the purpose of seeing the picture. It's not for the purpose particularly of seeing the frame. So when perception is balanced with mindfulness, the surface recognition of the perception frames the object for a deeper and more careful observation through mindfulness. So we might call a particular sound bird, we even name it hearing, which is perception, and then through mindfulness we open to the direct, deeper experience of that sound. So here we begin to understand the function of mental noting. Mental noting is actually a function of perception, it's not a function of mindfulness. When we note something, you know, hearing, thinking, seeing, heaviness, lightness, all of that is perception. We're recognizing the experience, but then we're using the perception to focus our mindfulness. And that's why it's said in the Abhidhamma that perception is one of the proximate causes for mindfulness to arise. So we're using this function of the mind, this function of recognition. We use it in the service of a deeper observation. There are some lines from the book, The Hours, by Michael Cunningham. Uh, You know, which is a beautiful book, and he's he's quite a wonderful writer. He said, everything in the world has its own secret name that cannot be conveyed in language, but is simply the sight and feel of the thing itself. Everything in the world has its own secret name that cannot be conveyed in language, but is simply the sight and feel of the thing itself. And it just, when I read that, it, it just reminded me of this move from perception, from recognition, from word, from concept into the sight and feel of the experience itself, into the direct experience through mindfulness. Okay, so this is when perception is balanced with mindfulness, is in the service of awareness. When there is perception without mindfulness, which for most people is the usual way of being in the world. 
So this is a, this is a powerful conditioning to be in the world, to be in our experience, operating through the level of perception, the function of perception, that is recognition, naming, remembering, but without that deeper attention. When that's what's going on, then we simply know and remember the surface appearance of things. We give a name or a concept to what arises, and then our experience often becomes limited by that very concept. When perception is strong, and when not being mindful, it's very difficult to stay open, to see in a new way, in a different way because we become limited by our preconceptions. This is, this is an extremely important uh, level shift that needs to happen in meditation. There's one story which I've mentioned often on different retreats, but it's, it's, it's such a classic example of how we can limit ourselves uh, through concepts. The son of a friend of mine, who was young, like in second grade or third grade, first grade, and the teacher asked the class, you know, what color are apples? And, you know, most of the kids said red or green, some said, you know, golden. But this friend, the son's son of a friend said, white. <laughs> and... The teacher said, no, 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 apples are not white. You know, they're red, they're green, they're this. They're not white. There are no white apples. But this kid was very insistent. Oh, they are white. And the teacher said, no, no, no. And they went back and forth. Finally, out of this tremendous frustration, you know, the, the kid said to the teacher, you know, what, what color is the apple when you cut it open? Oh, it's white. <laughs> so he was just holding the view of an apple in a not conventional way when you ask the question, what color is an apple? But for people with just this strong preconception, it precluded, you know, just another perspective, another way of understanding things. And this is what we do so often in our lives. When we're attached, even unconsciously, to the perception, to a conventional perception, then we don't look deeper, we don't we don't look in unique ways. We can also see how our perceptions very often condition how we feel about things. And many times, of course, our perceptions aren't even accurate. A couple of years ago at a three-month course, uh, one of the yogis told me the story of a time they were building, they were constructing a new house. And they were, you know, these were, there was a couple, and they were out at the site a lot. Um, and the house was coming to completion, and, you know, they were moving in. And they saw, at, at some point, they saw this great blue heron, you know, flying around. 
Uh, you know, and they're kind of excited by that. Then they moved into this house and they heard a chirping sound. You know, and they were so excited. They just thought, oh, great. You know, there were, the blue heron had, you know, laid some eggs and there were these little, going to be these little blue heron chicks. Uh, so that every time they heard the chirp, they were, you know, terribly excited and just made them really happy. And then, I don't know, maybe a week later or so, the contractor came along and he was doing various things in the house and he went down into the basement and he came up and he said, hey, you know, your smoke alarm is broken. And that chirping was just the smoke alarm <laughs> that was going off. And immediately, that sound which had given them so much pleasure became the source of so much irritation. You know, oh, we have to get that fixed. And of course, the sound was the same. The perception conditioned the feeling. And as we know, many of our perceptions are not accurate. So we need to be very watchful, you know, of that. When we don't observe things carefully, there's one deeply habituated perception that we have about the world, we have about ourselves, that becomes the origin of many inaccurate conclusions. So this is a common misperception and one that leads to many wrong conclusions and to a lot of suffering. And that is the perception we have of the solidity of things. We believe that we're living and we are in this very solid reality, solid world. And as long as this perception of solidity is fixed, it's not possible to deeply understand impermanence or the insubstantial nature of things. So somehow we, we need to understand why we have a perception of solidity. Why is that so strongly conditioned? So one way we can understand it we have this perception of things being solid or continuous because of the rapidity of change. The change is happening so quickly that often our mind is not refined enough to see the change. So I'll just give you a few very simple examples. You know, if you take a, a torch of fire, you know, and you twirl it around, what the eye will see is a ring of fire and it will appear like there's a ring you know, a fire. Well, actually, there's not a ring. It's, it's a torch that's being moved very quickly, but we're not seeing the movement. You know, where you go to the movies, when we go to the movies, we're not seeing the separate frames of film. There's actually no, no particular continuity to what's happening on the screen, but we're not seeing that. We're seeing a continuous flow and if we would make it 3D, you know, it's, it's as if there's solid beings there. But actually, it's just separate frames of film 
moving very quickly. Or electricity. Do we see the current of electrons? No. We see continuity or continuity solidity you know, of the appearance. The second reason that we are misled with this perception, not only the rapidity of change, but we also see things as being solid when we are not looking closely enough, when we're looking at things from a distance. When we see things from a distance, we're not perceiving the composite nature of the phenomena. So just as as an example, in the daytime especially, when you look out, maybe you look out in the distance and you see the woods, you know, or a distant hill. And from a distance, all we might see is some mass of color. You know, and then we come closer and we begin to see, oh, it's not just one mass of color. It's a lot of different trees. And then we become, look even a little closer than that. And the tree is not actually a tree. You know, it's, there's the bark and there's the leaves and there's the roots. And then you look even closer at that and bark and trees and roots disappear into smaller and smaller elements until there's nothing solid left there at all. And it all comes about through an increasingly refined attention. That's how we break through the illusion of solidity. This is precisely what is happening in our meditation practice. We are refining our rate of perception. So we're seeing the rising and passing away of things many more times a moment than usual. So we see impermanence in that way. And we begin to look very closely at experience so we see its composite nature. Okay, there are many areas in our lives where we can see this tendency to solidify the world through the use of concepts, through perception not balanced by mindfulness. But I think all of that will be next week. Just to say, kind of as a preview, that this factor of perception, this aggregate of perception, plays a critical role in the creation of the concept of self. And when it's not balanced with mindfulness, then we get caught by this concept, we get imprisoned by this concept, and then our lives are simply the acting out of this view of self, this idea of self. 
this one teaching which we'll elaborate more next week as we begin to see how perception uh, creates the concept of self and how we can also free ourselves from this. But a, a nice summary of it is expressed in the teachings of Kala Rinpoche, uh, one of the great Tibetan masters. Uh, and he said, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. Words, we're living in the world of perception. There is a reality. We are that reality there are underlying elements. When we understand this, we see that we are nothing. Being nothing, we are everything. That is all. And so this is the great gift of these teachings and all of the teachings in the Satipatthana Sutta. It's like a practical guide to awakening. The Buddha is giving us such specific instructions of what to do to awaken the mind from hallucinations of perception. And in this particular section on mindfulness of the Dhammas, we do it with respect to the aggregates. We begin to contemplate the contemplation of rupa, of the physical elements, seeing how they arise how they pass away. Contemplate the aggregate of feeling, pleasantness and unpleasantness. Contemplate the aggregate of perception. Seeing how our recognition and concepts can either lead us into the prison of concept or can frame the experience for a more a closer look, closer observation through mindfulness. This is, this is the, the gift of the teachings. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash insight hour.